Romans 12, 14 through 16. And I know I just asked you to take a seat, but I'm going to ask you to stand again one more time as I read these three verses to you and as we prepare to hear God's word this morning. And it says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text, and we ask that you would speak to us through it now, God. I pray that you would help us to learn this morning what it means to love those who are different from us, that we would love like Jesus loves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. And I want to title my sermon today just simply, Loving Those Who Are Different. Loving those who are different. And I like that word different. I chose that word different because different can mean so many different things today in our culture. Different can mean something good. It can mean something bad, you know, depending on how you use it and the tone of voice you use it with. But we are called as Christians to love those who are different. Are you with me? And so let's do so. Let's learn what that means in this passage. How would this be as an advertisement on Christianity? Become a Christian and you will receive an incredible opportunity to bless those who persecute you. Become a Christian and when you're not doing well and you see somebody succeed, you have a never before opportunity to celebrate their success. Become a Christian. And when you've got your own issues and you see somebody weeping, congratulations, you're called to weep with them. Become a Christian. And when you're in a disagreement and want to prove your point, you have an incredible offer to humble yourself and seek unity instead of winning an argument. Become a Christian. And after you have worked so hard to prove yourself and gain some status in the world, you will be called to associate with the lowly. You see, we don't do a whole lot of advertisements for Christianity because they don't work. Because advertisements appeal to the flesh. And Christianity doesn't appeal to the flesh. Christianity takes all of the world's norms and turns them upside down on their head. Christianity reverses everything that we valued prior to becoming a Christian. It changes everything. How different true Christianity is than that which parades today as Christianity. That which says that Christianity is all about your self-empowerment and self-care and personal success. But don't think 
that what we're looking at today in these verses is anything less than true greatness. Listen, we're not talking about being less great than you could be. We're talking about being greater than you thought greatness was. The world's definition of greatness is not actually great. Listen, wrap your mind around this. The greatest human being who ever walked this planet was who? You better say Jesus. Anybody other than, than, than our brother Tony? The greatest person who ever walked this planet was Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, the light of light, Lord of lords, God of very God, came into this world and he lived the kind of life that we're going to look at today. It's a life that turns the world's values on its head and says, instead of seeking my own interest, my own self-empowerment, and my own success, I'm called to love and extend myself and give myself to those who are different. Now, we want to be different. The problem is, is in our desire to be different, we often still look the same. We still look down on those who are different from us. We still curse our enemies. We still seek to distance ourselves from those who are weeping when we feel like rejoicing. We still distance ourselves from those who are rejoicing when we feel like weeping. We still uh, operate with wisdom in our own sight, in our own mind, and we disassociate with the poor and the broken and the hurting and the lonely. And as a result, if we don't change, if we don't get it, if we don't understand Christ here, well, we, we could end up just looking like the rest of the world, no different at all. Like the great American poet, Two Chains, who's in his award-winning poem, I'm Different, says, I'm different. Yeah, I'm different. I'm different. Yeah, I'm different. I'm different. Yeah, I'm different. Pull up to the scene with my ceiling missing, which means he's driving a convertible. Middle finger up to my competition, which means he thinks he's better. I'm different. Yeah, I'm different. You see, the irony of that poem is that he's no, not really any different than the rest of his millionaire rapper friends. He's driving a convertible. That is the sign that he's different. <laughs> you see, so many of us can be different in that, in that same way. We can sort of think of ourselves as so much greater than different. And then we can look down on others as so much lesser than different. Yet I want us to look to Jesus Christ this morning. And I want to see how he, truly different, loved us, those who were truly broken and truly in need. So we're in Romans chapter 12. Quick, quick background here. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Paul told us, exhorted us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of our minds. So he's saying we are to live changed lives. And then in verse 3, he begins for the rest of the chapter to put flesh on that statement in verse 1 and 2. This is what it looks like to live a transformed life. So verse 3 through 8, he talks about the spiritual gifts that operate within the local church. And he says, use your gifts accordingly to build up the body of Christ. And then we get into verse 9 through verse 21, and we could call these the maxims of the Christian life. And I've been intentionally uh, slowing down as I've been going through these. Two weeks ago, when we started these maxims of the Christian life, we, we looked at just three verses, and today we're looking at just another three verses. And that's because each one of these maxims could very well be a sermon in and of itself. Everyone is just so amazing and so, so, so proverbial and so beautiful and, and so eye-opening and, and wondrous and causes us to think and reflect and be convicted and look to Christ. I'm tempted to almost do one verse at a time, but we got to get through. we got to keep it moving. For example, look at verse 9 through 13 from two weeks ago. He said, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I titled that section, Genuine Love. And as we're moving now into these next three verses, verse 14 through 16, what I see here is that we are called to love those who are different. And then he goes on in verses uh, uh, 17 through 21, which we'll look at next week, and he calls us to love those honing in on our enemies. Now, as we look at all of these principles or rules and maxims, whatever we want to call them, I want to start off with this big overarching question, and that is this. Are we saved by grace or law? Are we saved by the grace of God only? Or are we saved by following these principles that we receive here in Romans chapter 12? And then if we are saved by grace only, then why follow such principles that are countercultural rules and laws? Well, as I look at these, I prefer the word maxims as opposed to rules or laws. You can call them whatever you want, but a maxim is defined as a, a short statement which expresses a general truth or rule of conduct. The ESV adds at the top of verse 9 its own heading which says, marks of the true Christian. And I think that these, that, that's a good description for what we're talking about here. We're talking about general principles of what Christians look like. We're talking about marks of a true Christian. For example, you might say barking is a mark of a true dog. But not everybody that barks is a dog. You see, barking doesn't make you a dog any more than following these principles makes you a Christian. 
to believe that you can somehow do some good works and, and follow some of these principles and learn how to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. That's like trying to change the, the color of the Atlantic Ocean by dropping some red food coloring into it and a couple drops hoping to turn the whole ocean red. It just doesn't happen. There is no amount of good that we can do to change our standing before God. We are not justified by our good deeds. Now, Paul has been very clear about that through the book of Romans. So in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, he says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. What Paul is saying here is that the one who is righteous before God is not the one who works, not the one who does, but the one who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no amount of loving your enemy that can earn you a right standing with God. There is no amount of rejoicing with those who rejoice that can earn you a right standing with God. So then how are we saved? Well, God made a way. Somebody say amen. amen. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, we read, At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that we are saved by trusting in Jesus only. We are not saved by trusting in Jesus plus our good works. We're not saved by trusting in Jesus plus choosing to live for him. We are saved by trusting in Jesus only. And so then that leads us to this next question then. If grace, then why would I live according to these principles? Why not just live however I want to live? Well... That's the next part. What, it, what, what, what Paul goes on to say in verse uh, Romans chapter 6, I'm just kind of turning chapter by chapter through Romans here. Chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, Paul then summarizes all of this, and he answers our question by saying this. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you would obey its sinful desires. What he's saying is, is since we've died with Christ, since we are, we're dead to our trespasses and sins, since we've been raised to the newness of life through Jesus Christ, now live as if you're alive. Live as if you are raised to new life in Christ. Live as if you are in Jesus he says, therefore, therefore, since grace, therefore, live like Jesus. Now, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, begins with what word? This is an open book exam. You're free to look. What do we see? Well, it's actually the fifth word. I appeal to you. <laughs> I? <laughs> I appeal to you. Here's the word, therefore, therefore. That's how he begins Romans chapter 12, 
with all of this said in Romans chapter 1 through 11, but the gospel of Jesus Christ saved by Christ's work alone, therefore, let me make my appeal by, what does he say? The mercies of God. Meaning, since God has been so merciful to us in salvation, therefore, I'm going to appeal to you to live a life that looks like Jesus, to be transformed, to be changed by the renewing of your mind. And so that leads us then into these maxims. This is what it means to live like Jesus as saved people, as people that are being sanctified living for His grace and for His glory, or because of His grace and for His glory. So how then should we love those who are different? Again, two weeks ago when we looked at the the previous three verses, we looked at genuine love within the church. And this still has to do with in the church as well as outside of the church, but Paul, Paul, I think, is turning a little bit and focusing in on those who are different from us. How do we love like Jesus when we think about those who are different? I want to give you four principles from these three verses. Number one, number one, bless those who are different in their allegiances. Bless those who are different in their allegiances. I get this from verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Tom Schreiner says, this is one of the most revolutionary statements and it can be carried out only by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Roman Christians knew persecution. They were persecuted on both sides. They were persecuted by their Jewish brothers and sisters who thought that they were foolish for following Christ as the Messiah. They would soon be kicked out of the synagogues. They were persecuted by by, by the Greeks, by the Romans, who saw the Christians as an affront to the gods of Rome, the problem of society. And it would only be a short decade or so before these persecutors would, would rally around a wholesale persecution against the church. As many Christians in Rome who are reading this would be losing their lives to the hands of Nero. They knew persecution. And at the same time, God in His sovereignty was preparing them for more persecution. Now, how should we think about those who are against us? Well, in in their culture of, of, of their day, what was the norm was to curse those who were, were against you. So they actually sold these curse tablets. They were big pieces of stone that you could buy. And you could literally write somebody's name on there, and there would be a curse written on the tablet, and, and, and you could write their name on there and then offer it to the gods, and the, and the hope was that the gods would be on your side and carry through with the curse. You know, so I might say, you know, uh, may Montrell turn into liquid. You know, that, that's kind of the curse. I would never do that to you, brother. 
trying to think of an example here. Um, some of the surviving tablets, they, they, they say things like, uh, um, do not let sleep, do not allow sleep to the one who has done me wrong. May he become liquid as the water. Sorry, Montreal, I didn't mean to curse you. May she become dumb. It was, it was their culture and their expectation that the gods would be on your side to bring about calamity against your enemies. Now, how different Jesus was. Think about Christ who's walking with his disciples and his disciples want to call fire down upon a Samaritan village that just rejected him. And Jesus says, no, we don't do that. We bless those who persecute us. Bless here means to call on God to give somebody grace. To call on God to give somebody mercy. It's the opposite of what they would do in their own culture. Jesus modeled this himself as he's hanging on the cross, looking at the very people who literally just put hand, uh, nails in his hands and his feet. And what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus looked at those who were persecuting him, sinning against him, the greatest atrocity committed in all of the world, and he sees them with eyes of pity. He knows that sin blinds. It truly blinds. And while they are responsible for their sin, while they will be held accountable for their sin, Jesus has pity upon them. And he sees them as people who are truly ignorant. And he prays for them. He blesses them. Think about the robbers. What are the robbers doing? They are cursing Christ. They're calling out curses against him. And then one of the robbers changes his mind. And what does Jesus say? He blesses him. He says, today you will be with me in my Father's kingdom. To bless, it's to pray and ask God to bring his grace and mercy upon an individual. And it is also a word that's used to speak good words, as Jesus did. Words of encouragement, words of consolation. How do we bless those who persecute us? Number one, view your enemies with Christ-like pity. View them with pity. Understand that sin blinds them. Understand that they are truly ignorant. And I don't mean ignorant in some kind of like, I know we use that in, in like some kind of like almost as a curse word now, you're ignorant. I mean that in the truest sense of the word, they're ignorant. And so we respond with a heart of, of, of concern and, and love and care and we ask God to show that mercy. Secondly, it's simple. Think before you speak. I mean like that phrase applies to how you are with your family and your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your kids, your friends. And it also applies to your enemies. Think. Think before you speak. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 says, A soft word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, I don't mean that 
we agree with our enemy. I don't mean that we agree with the persecutor. I don't mean that we passively let people walk all over us. But what I do mean is this. Christians are not concerned with devouring their enemy. Christians are concerned with winning their enemy. And so therefore, we bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse. Secondly, how do we love those who are different? In verse 15, we join with those who are different in their emotions. Join with those who are different in their emotions. Look at verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. One commentator says that love, Christian love, requires us to go beyond material help and to develop a close emotional connection with one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is part of our church covenant. And when I lead our our membership class, I always say this. This line sounds nice, but it's hard. This is hard. Imagine being dissatisfied with your work. I know none of you are. That's why I say imagine. (laughs) Imagine struggling to make ends meet. You know, not really qualified to do something else. Frustrated with your life. And then somebody from our church who already makes twice as much as you lands a new job. And they're celebrating because they're making more money. And they got a promotion. And they got greater accolades. And they got more skills. And you're called to rejoice with them. If I could put it like this, everybody wants to have successful friends, but nobody likes it when their friends get successful. Everybody wants to have famous friends, but nobody likes it when their friends get famous. Why? Why is it hard to rejoice with those who rejoice? What keeps us from rejoicing? It's envy. It's jealousy. It's a sense of comparison and competition. Covetousness. You know, covetousness says, not only do I want what others have, but I don't want them to have it. And then because of our own hardships and our own lack of opportunities, we can feel justified in our envy. We can feel justified in our hatred for those who are doing better than us. But church, we are one. And so when one is celebrating, we all celebrate. When one has a victory, we all have a victory. When one succeeds, we all succeed. This is like a mind-boggling turn. No other community thinks this way. But there is no sense of competition for accolades or success or rejoicing in the local church. But we rejoice together. Now, in the same way, we are also called to weep with those who weep. And so you got a pay raise. You got a new job. And you know somebody else is struggling. You enter into their weeping. 
you enter into their sorrow. You enter into their struggle. When you know that you have your own issues, and then somebody else comes along, and they're weeping about their issues, it's not time for you to talk about your own issues and how bad you have it. But instead, you enter into their weeping. You see how Christ-like this is. We rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. Church, this takes maturity, and it takes practice. It, it, it often requires us to just humbly and honestly evaluate how we did. You know, walking away from somebody who was rejoicing or walking away from somebody that was weeping. You know, without any sense of like shame or guilt, because by the way, all of that is taken care of on the cross. We can freely evaluate ourselves and ask, I can ask myself, did I weep well with those who were weeping? Did I rejoice well with those who are rejoicing? Or am I allowing sin to get the better of me? We're being like Jesus for each other. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. The Apostle Paul there says, Each one should look not to their own interest, but to the interest of others. And then he goes on in verse 5 to connect it directly with Jesus. He says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, by the way, was with God. And he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He put himself under all of us, taking on not the form of a king or the form of a boss or the form of a manager, but he took on the form of a servant. And he was obedient to God, obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross, the most shameful way that anybody in their day could have possibly died. Yeah, we're just called to be like Jesus. Now, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. We're not talking about lesser than great. We're talking about great, great. There is true freedom in what I'm talking about. Tim Keller wrote a book, a little book. Everybody should buy it and read it. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And the title says it all. When we forget ourselves and enter into loving relationships and interest with others, there's freedom there. There is great bondage in self-absorption. And if you're self-absorbed, I don't even have to prove it. You know it. You're in bondage. Find freedom in Christ. Thirdly, how do we love those who are different? Third, have peace with those who are different in their ideas. Or seek peace with those who are different in their ideas. So 16, verse 16, begins one line. He says, live in harmony with one another. Everybody say harmony. Harmony, harmony that word means to have understanding. Have understanding with each other. One theologian says diversity in the local church is a wonderful thing. 
However, when it comes to our thinking, we should strive for unity. I thought that was good. We are one in our thinking. Now, I don't mean all of our ideas and all of our thoughts and cultures. I mean, when it comes down to our doctrines, what is it that unifies the local church? It's not, it's not our flesh. It's our Savior. And so we, we are then after, and part of what it means to follow Jesus and to love those that are different from us is to pursue genuine unity. So two weeks ago, we talked about genuine love. Last week, Eric talked about genuine faith. This week, we're talking about genuine unity, having real unity in the body of Christ. The 30 years war was a war that lasted 30 years. I'm quite the historian. It was from 1618 to 1648. And it was a bloody time in history. It was a war that was driven by religious tensions as, as people were fighting over religious divisions and territory and money. And during this time, to call the church to harmony, the Lutheran theologian Rupertus Meldenius, what a name, he wrote a little tract, and in the tract it said, quote, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And that phrase was widely used and has been widely used over the last 400 years throughout all sorts of denominations and Christian traditions as we seek to live out this truth that we would live in harmony with one another. How do we find unity? He summed it up well. He's saying in the essentials, we ought to have unity, meaning when it comes to it, the essentials of what it means to follow Christ, who Jesus is, the clear things that are revealed to us, we find our unity there. We don't fight for it, we find ourselves there, you see? We discover that we are unified in the essentials. And then when it comes to our non-essentials, our strategies, our ideas, our cultures, we're open-handed. In non-essentials, uh, uh, liberty. And then in all things, we're guided by love. Now listen, in every church, including this one, tensions will arise. There are disagreements over strategies, music, projects, non-essential doctrinal issues. One's ministry passion might not align with another's ministry passion. We have differences of background and culture, and that often leads us to differences in values and assumptions. When people disagree, what do we do? We strive for understanding. That's what he means. Strive to understand the other person. Just begin with that. You might still disagree with them, but strive to understand them. And believe the best about them. That's part of understanding. You see, to assume the worst about somebody is to immediately jump into a misunderstanding. But believe the best about the person that you disagree with and seek then to understand them. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. 
So how do we love those who are different? Number one, bless those who are different in their allegiances. Number two, join with those who are different in their emotions. Number three, seek peace with those who are different in their ideas. And last but not least, number four, associate with those who are different in their status. Associate with those who are different in their status. Uh, Verse 16 continues. He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Somebody say, associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. Francis Grimke, he was a pastor in post-Reconstruction era Washington, D.C. This is 1890s. African-American pastor. And he had watched how white churches had declined in their solidarity with the black church since the emancipation of slaves during the Reconstruction era. By the time you get to the 1890s in American history, racism is rearing its ugly head as African Americans are moving to the northern cities and being shut out of uh, white spaces, including churches. And so Francis Grimke is seeing this hypocrisy in so many American churches. And he thunders against the church in 1898 in a sermon in this way. He says, the pulpit should be a tower of strength to every weak cause. Women should hasten to the church saying, our cause will be upheld there. Homeless little children should speed to the sanctuary saying, we will be welcomed there. Slaves running away should open the church door with certainty of hospitality. See, his point was simple. Society's lowly, quote unquote, those that society would deem to be of lower status ought to find solace in the church. Now, is this truth that we are called to associate with society's outcasts? Is this true today in our churches? When we think of Christianity across America, white churches, black churches, Asian churches, Latino churches, multicultural churches, urban churches, suburban churches, would we say that it is generally true of Christianity that Christians are known to be people who associate with the lowly? I don't know. I don't know if that's true. When we think of society's outcasts, I mean, who is it that's the lowly today? In every era, it changes According uh, to, to time and place, the lowly, the outcasts change. But there are always in-groups and out-groups. In Jesus' own day, there was a number of different kind of lowly categories. There were the ethnic outcasts. You know, Jesus talked of a good Samaritan. There were the moral outcasts. Jesus stopped the stoning of a woman that was caught in adultery. There were the ceremonial outcasts, lepers, for example, who came to Jesus. There were class outcasts, 
from lower class to upper class, even the Roman centurion would have been an out. Maybe, check one, two. For Paul here, the lowly were likely the poor in the church. But not only in the church, I think he probably has kind of a very general outlook on this. In the church and in society as well. Paul here is clearly mixing uh, ways that we love those in the body and outside of the body side by side. And so I don't think we should distinguish too much between the church versus not in the church, Christians versus not Christians. But I think Paul is simply saying the lowly. Those who are deemed by broader society as the ones who don't fit, the outcast. Now, this command that we associate with the lowly is sandwiched between two negatives. He says, on one hand, do not be haughty. And then he says, associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. By the way, somebody that's wise in their own sight is rarely wise in the eyes of others. That's an old proverb. And right in the middle of these two negatives that are calling us to not be proud, right in the middle, the meat of it, he says, associate with the lowly. The lowly. This could be the poor. This could be those with substance abuse, codependent on drugs or alcohol. This could be those who have various physical disabilities. This could even be the elderly in some cases, where so often, you know, people in their last five, ten years of life, after they cannot contribute that much more to society, are just kind of put on a shelf, and we disassociate. You know, who, who are the lowly today? And do you associate? Associate means, it, it kind of means condescend, but not in a condescending sort of way, you know. But it, it means to kind of step down and to take up residence with. In the way that Jesus condescended to us. It means to become family with. It means to identify with. It means to say, they're mine. They're one of mine. I'm with them. It means to bring someone close, to associate with the lowly. Now, what is it that keeps us from that? The, the bread of this sandwich is pride. Pride seeks honor. Pride says, I deserve, others don't. Pride seeks self-benefit. The, 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 the proud, they, they invite friends who will prove how good they are. They invite friends over who they know are going to bring a good dessert. They invite friends over who they know are going to bring some good conversation. They invite people to live and to associate with people that make them look good. They associate with others for self-benefit. But in contrast, love does not seek its own. 
So the application church is simple. Make it your goal to associate with the lowly. Who are the outcasts of society today? And when are they coming over for dinner? When are you going to knock on their door? When are you going to stop and talk to them and have a conversation with them? What does it look like for you to associate with the lowly of society? Can we just praise God that he didn't avoid us? I mean, who is a church that is the lowly? The lowly are those biblically who have no other option but Jesus. Jesus says, says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Meaning that we are the lowly. We are really the lowly. We are the spiritual scoundrels who found Christ to be a sufficient Savior. Don't you see as we go through this that all of this is about the greatness of Christ? All of this is about who Jesus is and what it means for us to just simply live in Christ, to live through Christ, to live with Christ, because love did not seek its own, but love took up residence with us, and He stands with us. We sang the song this morning, when the storms of life are raging, stand by me. In the midst of tribulation, stand by me. In the midst of faults and failures, stand by me. In the midst of persecution, stand by me. Christ stands by you. He's with us. He came to us. He stood by you. Oh, I I think of Paul, where Paul says, everybody had deserted me. Everybody abandoned me. But the Lord stood by He stands by you now, and He will stand by you because Christ took the death that you deserve. It put Him in the ground, and then three days later, He stood up, and when He stood up, He stood to stand with you. And so He's come to us. Oh, He is the different one, amen? We are the different ones, amen? But praise God that we have a Savior who loved those who are different. And so church, let us love those who are different. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ this morning loving us, the lowly. We ask that you would help us to love those who are different, whether it be our enemies, whether it be those in different emotional states in our church, those who have different ideas than us or those of a different status. May we be a people of love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.